So you become enormously emotionally invested in the outcome and um, I certainly wasn't prepared to uh, walk away from it. When I finished at the NTCA, um, the board asked me to keep the class action um, as a, one of uh, the projects that I continue on for them to see it through to conclusion. So um, I was only too happy to do that. G'day and welcome to episode 47 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and today I'm chatting with Tracy Hayes. Tracy is an incredible woman who's spent her career in the Northern Territory and across Northern Australia, building her career from the paddock right through to the boardroom. Before we jump into finding out a bit more about Tracy and today's conversation, I wanted to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more in our show notes or via their website at www.lawd.com.au. Tracy Hayes has considerable experience in her career so far in the Northern Territory. Among her many accomplishments and achievements, she's a private pilot, graduate of the Global Executive MBA. She was the first female CEO of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association responsible for the more than $1 billion pastoral industry. And more recently, she was a candidate in the 2020 NT election. As a mum to four boys who are sixth generation Territorians, it's fair to say the top end is in your blood. So welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Tracy, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Ollie. It's lovely to be with you. It's been a little while in the making, but I suppose you've, you've been busy the back end of 2020 with uh, the, yeah, election. How... How full on what was the year for you and, and I suppose the lead up to that? Yeah, so it's different, uh, definitely um, an interesting experience. Putting your hand up for politics is quite daunting, um, let alone in a COVID year. Um, it, it's fair to say I've been close to politics for a number of years just by the nature of the role that I've been involved in over the last decade or so, working closely um, with regulators and legislators and um, yeah the territory is quite an interesting and unique place politics are are pretty um, dynamic up here you never know what you're going to wake up to each day we had a situation uh, in the 2016 election where the um, liberal nationals they call them country liberal party up here um, was all but wiped out um, sort of decimated in the election um, down to two seats. So for a whole term of government, pretty much uh, there was, wasn't an operating opposition. And um, I really noticed the impact that that had on the territory and on sort of decision-making. It's not really healthy, I don't think, for any democracy to have such a, a massive majority. And I'm sure Western Australia is about to go through it now. It doesn't really matter what side of politics you're on. Um, so it's certainly not an easy decision. Um, I had, uh, you know, quite an enjoyable um, career in the business um, sector and ag sector. Uh, anyway, I felt that it was time to step up and contribute um, to um, the rebuilding of um, the country liberal brand in the territory and try and assist to uh, get democracy functioning better by a few more seats. So um, I live in the electorate of Fanny Bay, which it just so happens to be the chief minister's electorate. I was going to say, so, you, you certainly thought, yeah, you'd go right at it, go for the top job. 
yes, and a lot of people, you know, wise political um, punters, I guess, you know, thought that it was a crazy decision. But um, from my perspective, it was very much about representing my own community. And I mean, I'm sure once you're elected and and uh, are in the job, of course, you're representing all territorians. Uh, but initially, it's about. Um, for me, it was important to start off on the right foot, and that meant um, re- representing the community that I'm a part of, which is this electorate. So that was the uh, decision behind uh, the sorry, the thinking behind my decision. Uh, anyway, the um, so very um, difficult task. The chief minister um, enjoys a large hold on the seat, and that certainly we. Uh, Took a tiny bit of uh, the margin, but um, not a lot. And um, and I think, it, um, on reflection, um, the dynamic in the territory um, was very much a COVID dynamic. We there there are a lot of issues up here currently um, with a large debt, um, and also um, a large um, law and order or crime problem. And there's traditional issues that come up again and again in elections anywhere. Um, But on this occasion, it really wasn't as important to the community as what coronavirus and and managing COVID-19 was. So at the end of the day, um, the electorate felt that it wasn't time for a change, that they wanted to stick with the um, certainty that uh, came with the model of management of COVID and, and, uh, yeah, so it's um, back to normal now um, in terms of the political landscape up here. COVID seems to um, be less of a focus um, for members of the community and they're back feeling pretty cranky about crime and and uh, debt, which uh, so it sort of seems like we've gone full circle, but we've had an election in the middle. You just needed a few more months. Uh, possibly, yes, a few more months. Um, but anyway, that's the nature of the beast. And um, there's, you know, there's plenty more elections and there'll be plenty more um, opportunities for those down the track that want to participate. Can I ask, like, so obviously you must invest so heavily at a personal level into the campaign and I suppose really believing that you're going to win. What What's it like in those moments, I suppose, after an election where, yeah, kind of the defeat comes real and you're back to the drawing board yeah so you're right it's uh it's pretty hectic and physically and emotionally you need to give it your all I was really lucky I had a fantastic team and um they were they motivated me we motivated each other we were um ran an incredibly professional campaign and Look, to be honest, they really we did everything we possibly could. We had an, a, a debrief after the election, and there really wasn't too much that we felt that we could have done different. Um, so we felt satisfied that we gave it everything we could. And I, I think it would have been awful to have woken up Sunday morning feeling like we could have or should have done something. Whereas, uh, sure, we were disappointed. Um, but it wasn't entirely a surprise um, given the COVID situation. It was it was not a typical campaign. It was very difficult to get out and about in the community. We weren't able to have events. Uh, it was hard to get face-to-face with people. Um, it was difficult to be able to talk with any real authority on um, the management of COVID because a, a lot of it was um, 
being directed by the chief health officer. So, and we've seen it. Um, there have been a few elections since and the results have pretty well been the same as what's happened in the Territory. So Sunday after the election, um, to be honest, I, I woke up feeling fairly satisfied that we'd given it everything we could. And that's all you can ask, really, I think, of your team and, and a candidate. Um, and I, th I feel um, pretty satisfied as well that the party that I was representing were able to um, win back quite a few seats and um, some really great young people um, sitting now as MLAs in the Territory Parliament. They're looking and sounding like a strong opposition and uh, they'll be really well positioned going into the next election and that's really what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Rebuilding the platform for them and hopefully success yep. comes at some stage. Yes, that's right, and it's the uh, the nature of the beast, and it's just um, how how it goes, and it's really just a down to the grind, hard work, keeping in tune with your community, listening to what they have to say, and um, trying to present as an alternative uh, model of government. Yeah, and was there? Am I right in saying? I think I was listening to a podcast, and there, there was uncomfortable moments where it was literally standing on. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. On the side of roads and waving and that side of the campaign as well? Yes, yep. So Got to say, that's not my natural. <laughs> I'm sure you've driven past people campaigning and waving and doing all sorts of things. And um, look, uh, you probably heard me say I'm an introvert by nature and I found that really difficult. And the pe people involved in campaigns, they assure me that that's a, an important part of campaigning. Uh, I never fully understood it. To be honest, I, after a while, I, I just it, it, I got used to it and um, I, I used to enjoy it. I'd have a, a spot set up every Friday night, one particular area, and the, after a while people would just come every Friday for a chat. So I got uh, to the stage where I was actually looking forward to it um, and met a lot of people that way but yeah it's uh it certainly doesn't come naturally and it's an unusual um part of the process I've got to say I've, my interest has more been um one-on-one -on -one policy area um thinking about you know what it is that you do once you become a politician um you know the legislature making um rules trying to make change for the better so the actual campaign part um working very hard to get elected 
yeah, there are parts of that that really can put you outside your comfort zone. Yeah, I bet. And, and in the public eye too. And so that's one thing I'd love to chat to you about. And it's one in the clock back a little bit, but it's um, you, you grew up in Unandatta in South Australia, outback South Australia. And so it's a long way from there to boardrooms and, and party politics, particularly. I suppose, yeah, what, what, what was it like as a kid in Unandatta and, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my family managed a property um, outside of Udnadera, about twenty kilometres out. Um, it's called Allendale Station. Beautiful property, sort of on the edge of the Gibber Flats. Beautiful sweet grass country with um, natural waterholes running through it. Not a lot of bores, or if any, actually, um, on the edge of artesian water. Uh, the family ran Pole Hereford cattle. Um, I had, I have two older brothers and, um, we were, um, homeschooled for most of it. Um, there were a few years there. I went to school, um, in Udnadatta at the local Aboriginal school. I've got really fond memories uh, of my time there, but as look, it's fair to say we had a wonderful childhood. It was, you know, the days without power, so just generator. So the nights were very, very hot. It's pretty hot in Udnadatta. Summers get up close to 50 in some cases over. Um, there were not a lot of um, luxury, if I can say that. Um, you know, we never went without, but it um, we didn't have SCD telephone or television or any of those types of things that we just, you know, my kids take for granted or don't even think about now. And, um, yeah, so when eventually it wasn't until uh, married life that we got night power, you know, I never, ever take for granted uh, going to bed at night with a fan on and being able to read with a light on. Yeah, far out. And I'd love to, yeah, yeah the... The ab- local Aboriginal school, like it's just, I suppose, so far removed, particularly from my own upbringing. What, what was it like? And, uh, yeah, you, you actually learnt um, the local dialect as well, didn't you? Yes, yeah. So we had a, um, a family that lived and worked on the property. Um, um, the dad worked for my dad and, uh, and the kids and I, their kids, and I were roughly the same age as myself and my brothers. And, um, yeah, we just pretty well grew up together and went to school together. So um, we became quite close. And, yeah, it was just, um, you know, I didn't think, really think anything of it. Um, looking back now, it was, you know, quite... Um, you know, quite an extraordinary period of, of our childhood. It was completely different. You're exposed to um, doing school a different way and with a lot of kids that, you know, English is a second language. And um, But it didn't, I didn't think, think of it, a thing of it as a child. It was just I was one of them. They were one of us. We were just all in it together, the kids. And, um, yeah, and got some great mates and I still catch up with them to um, uh, still friends with them now. Sorry, just, and uh, still um, keep in contact, particularly via Facebook, which is great. It's cool. So I love to hear what, you know, the urban data community are up to and, and um, the people that I grew up with. And of course now they're, some of them are grandparents and watching their lives progress. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. 
When um, at, at what stage, I suppose, did did the the mindset shift and start to think of a career down down the path of business? Or yeah, were those? Did you go jillarooing and and spend a fair bit of time on stations out of school? Yeah, so I was always um, very active out in the stock camp right from a young age. That was my primary focus. So it was, um, I just considered myself one of the uh, fellas really just out um, trying, working hard to, um, my dad to uh, allow me to, to uh, keep a horse in the, in the plant, in the camp. Um, that was, you know, pretty important. You needed one or two horses in, in the plant. So I knew if I had my, my nags in, in the bunch that I was included in that muster. So, um, yeah, it was always, I guess I started from a very young age, learnt how you needed to be able to work hard to keep up, to be um, part of a, a team and to be considered to do things that, um, you know, keep incremental improvement, I guess. So started off, you know, with a little pony that it was probably a little chubby pony that didn't go too fast <laughs> and it sat on the tail of the mob. And then, you know, as, as things progressed, it became increasingly more responsible for roles as they went along. So, yeah, and I really didn't realise it at the time. To me, it was just the, my childhood and, and the life that um, we led. And it wasn't really until later on in life that I understood how applicable and transferable a lot of those skills um, that I learnt then transferable into the boardroom and corporate life. And, um, you know, it's really set me up well for what I was uh, about to embark on later on. Yeah, I bet. A lot of lessons, isn't it? I suppose it's just that practical life skills. It's amazing where you pick them up, but when they also come back to the fore. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I reflect on a lot uh, was how we, you learn an enormous patience there. There's a, we think a lot now about young folk, particularly in this age of instant gratification. It's not just young folk, but you know, that comes with social media or technology in the world we operate in now. But uh, so growing up, we had maybe one or two social functions a year and we really look forward to those. And, you know, when it was all over, the weekend was over, you know, 12 months is a long time to wait for the next one. But um, so that sort of teaches you other experiences uh, there are other benefits that come from that learning to be patient and learning to look forward to things, learning to appreciate things um, when they arrive. And the same could be said for modern conveniences and even the mail uh, VHS when videos, um, when we've got our first video player, those types of things. So I feel pretty grateful that I had a childhood during that era where you really appreciate the good things in life because you've had to work hard for them and, and wait for them to come. So when they arrive, you know, they really mean a lot. Yeah. And I, a question I've got for you around, um, yeah, I suppose just being one of the crew and, and you said before where you just were, you were one of the fellas. Like we hear so often that there's, I suppose, um, disconnections and disadvantage for females in the workplace like particularly in the agriculture sector but also operating in the north as well have you had some pretty 
confronting and just conversations or yeah I suppose how's your experience been in regard to that yeah look it's very topical at the moment and I reflect on it a lot and I spend a lot of time now mentoring young women it's really important to me leadership of women um, not only in agriculture but in business Uh, as a young woman it wasn't a thing that even entered my head I, I didn't see it Uh, as any different other than I had a a fairly strict um, dad who would have preferred that I stay at home but that's just how he was brought up so um, I was programmed possibly the same way but that didn't sit right with me I wanted to be out in the stock camp doing the things my brothers were doing so um, I learned ways of you know um, you know putting forward a case and, um, you know, working hard sort of to earn your place and that sort of continued later on. But I've seen some pretty ordinary things, treatment of women, um, particularly in the corporate space, in the political space, it's exceptionally bad um, and uh, a lot of it's, of course, playing out now. But also in saying that, um, it's not just a a problem for women. I've seen it on both sides and... um, it, it can, it's, can be some of it attributed to some, particularly some of the, the sexual behaviour that we're seeing and seeing reported daily over the last few weeks. It, it's uh, it's uh, a behavioural issue and um, something that um, comes with a poor culture um, in any workplace and, and it can affect um, either gender. So, um, but certainly for young women, um, what I've experienced is it's there's been a reluctance to um, consider women for roles. Um, but I, I definitely think, Ollie, that that's improving now. Like we're seeing some incredible, incredibly um, uh, re- resilient and capable women that are stepping forward. Um, I've noticed that women, and particularly women that have worked for me over the years, are not as uh, um, not as forthcoming in putting themselves forward for promotion or pay rises or things like that as what men are. Um, I'm generalising now, it's, but uh, it's just my, my experience and how I've seen um, different genders operate in the workplace. Um, women tend to second guess their ability and and doubt themselves and self-doubt can create a problem. So it's really incumbent, I think, on leaders and people in the workplace to ensure that we're encouraging those around us to consider putting their hand up when opportunities come along, um, particularly in boardrooms and in corporate agriculture. And I'd like to see some more CEOs of uh, of corporate um, ag businesses where we're seeing um, a few more in the political space but we definitely could be doing better uh, in boardrooms and and around decision making tables yeah absolutely and I'm, I'm going to jump around here a bit I suppose I've had a few questions that are in my mind but I'd love to touch on so you did the the global um, executives masters um, and um, or a few years ago was that a conversation which was front and centre as part of that? 
Yeah, so that was a really fabulous opportunity um, through the University of Sydney. Uh, we did a lot of international travel as part of that EMBA. And um, look, it wasn't as prominent um, as you might think. It was, um, there were some really capable and um, incredible uh, women as part of the cohort. So it's, it's less... Um, obvious I think in some uh, corporate areas mm -hmm. but it's it's definitely still um, it's definitely exists in areas that you might think and um, one of the hats I've worn historically has uh, been on the Order of Australia Honours Council so we play a role um, presiding over the um, the honours award system from AC to AOAM and OAMs. So it's such a fabulous thing to be a part of. And you see nominations come through from members of the community doing fantastic things. So being recognised for the work that they do. But statistically, um, there's some real gaps there in the recognition of women uh, for their achievements and their contribution to the community and areas that might surprise you and uh, of course agriculture the statistics are the um, the gender gaps quite large um, but areas such as media was was a big surprise to me the statistics uh, are not great in that area so uh, and law is another area uh, and even uh, medicine so we've got a lot of work to do I know the Honours Council are working very hard on it but that's a I think indicative or representative of the value that we place on certain members of society so um, once again it's really incumbent on all of us to think about an amazing woman that we know doing um, a job that she's probably no one's thought to uh, acknowledge and, and just work a little bit harder in, in that space. Yeah, so it's a long-winded way of saying um, it may not have been um, prominent in the EMBA. We were really focused on uh, areas around tech and different business models and, and had an international focus. Uh, but um, I'm certainly aware that there are great challenges for us that exist across the board um, and the Honours Council is, a, I think, a good measure of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do want to um, ask you on the Honours Council just to understand, I suppose, more about that. But specifically on the EMBA, like the, the people that were part of that, I suppose, how have you seen them and, I suppose, their businesses react, I think? COVID particularly is such an interesting time to be in a leadership position, whether it's at a government polit political level or particularly in business, just with so much uncertainty. Like, yeah, <laughs> I suppose my, my query here is like, have, have we seen businesses fundamentally change, I suppose, to what's happened at, in the bigger picture yeah. of the world? Um, or, yeah, do you think we're, we're reverting back to what's comfortable? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it, it may be too early to tell, but um, I suspect we're reverting back to what's comfortable. Um, you've only got to see that in the behaviour from people when 
they think COVID's no longer a threat. We go back to what's comfortable for mm. us. We're social beings and we like to be close to each other. And, and yeah, and I've certainly observed that. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of flights since September last year, some 40-odd now. Yeah, wow. So I've been in and out of airports and travelling a lot and observing the behaviours of people. So uh, I think there are elements of our businesses that will be different. Um, and I think it was a good opportunity for people to either pivot completely, some sort of 180 even, uh, but have a really close look at our businesses, how we operate and um, what we can do differently. I mean, the uptake of Zoom and, and video conferencing, for example, is just so acceptable now that um, that's definitely here to stay. And um, the fact that it's dodgy connection or you might have, you know, a bit of a basket of washing sitting in the background or, yeah. you know, something going on in the background of a, of a video conference call seems to be much more accepting than what it would have been beforehand yeah, yeah so they're just um little observations just back on the emba um one of the areas that um and i link it back to a podcast one of yours that i was having a listen to i think it was a young woman that had studied law um that was an area where um where particularly need to do some work in is corporate law and the way women, um, uh, you know, find themselves sort of working sort of, I guess it's probably all lawyers, but, you know, it's very, it's my experience um, with my colleagues in, in the cohort that I was studying with and, and even family members. Um, I think COVID really um, is an opportunity for corporate law to reset the way that they work the heck out of uh, their um, employees and um, particularly those um, that have got a family and whatnot at home and sort of huge expectation for a little return. Yeah, it's been, I think, amazing um, on that just, and I suppose from my perspective, being able to get insights into so many different people, I suppose, in the midst of lockdown last year, but even I think some of the different documentaries like following the Adelaide or following all the AFL teams, but particularly like the Adelaide Crows and Rory Sloan, like it just really, really interesting how people's perceptions and it, I think it comes back to real how leaders set the platform around where the expectations are, but also like where their own priorities are and then how they live those values. Yeah. And authenticity is one thing I think that we're all really crying out for in a leader and in leadership. And, um, yeah, it's uh, politics is one thing, but also, you know, it's been such a, um, I was going to use the word ugly, but that's probably not quite the right word, but we've seen so much turmoil um, in our leaders, whether it be leaders of the church or leaders of uh, sporting fields, uh, on the sporting field or in our schools or, you know, in in politics. And, you know, you can't blame young people for looking to um, some of, you know, our leaders and really questioning um, what's going on here. And I guess that's a positive in so far as they feel comfortable to ask the questions and apply some pressure. And, and um, so we're looking for 
greater rigour around um, those institutions and um, things that have traditionally meant a lot to us. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done in the leadership space across the spectrum. Um, and I think we will see uh, people emerge out of COVID um, behaving differently. Let's hope so that COVID's been an opportunity to reset um, and reprioritise what's important. And one thing's for sure, we're very clear on what we don't want out of our leaders um, in, you know, life after COVID. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know on that leadership front, how would you, I suppose, describe your own approach uh, to leadership and, and maybe your own style as well? Because I think, yeah, obviously you've got quite a unique upbringing and then have moved through various spheres, whether it's corporate, political, et cetera. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested to know how you describe your own. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, well, it's, it's always um, interesting to answer a question about yourself, but that's probably, um, I guess, one of the things that I really practice a lot is self-reflection. And I think for any leader, anywhere, any level, that's a really important thing um, it's to take the time to think things through, the decisions you've made, how you've made them, what impact you've had on people and um, and could you have done things differently or better? Is there room for improvement? And so I think leaders uh, really need to um, have the ability and take the time for self-reflection. That's uh, important. The other thing, uh, there are a few fundamentals that are important to me, playing a straight bat, operating with integrity and um, and being prepared to, um, you know, I wouldn't really ever ask anyone to do anything that I wasn't prepared to do myself. Yeah. Uh, that's also um, a philosophy that I tend to work by and, uh, and taking the time if you've got a team um, building your team, and um, that's really critical. So, you know, understanding the environment you're in. I mean, leadership is not just about um, being a CEO or the chair of a board. Like, you can practice leadership in any environment, and I'm constantly talking to my boys about it. It's, uh, it can be in the schoolyard, it can be in the classroom. Leadership's not easy, and sometimes it can be very lonely, and sometimes particularly if um, you've got to go, you're going against uh, the populist kind of position um, and, you know, that can be very, very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. But, but important. Yeah, and I think that's where, where true leaders really come to their own, isn't it? Like it's, it's easy to find cheerleaders and but oh, I'm trying to think what the quote is. I've got it but, uh, around basically if everyone in the room is agreeing, then no one in the room's thinking differently. Yeah. Oh, group think, you know, is also a bit dangerous. You know, it's actually one of the things that the MBA dwelled on a lot and that was um, having, you know, tension in a team and it's actually not 100% healthy for everyone to be, you know, um, super satisfied um, with the direction that you're taking. It's important to... Um, not create tension for tension's sake, but 
um, you know, to have the ability or, or to feel like you can make a suggestion or, or, or question the decisions that's being made by your board or by your team or whatever it might be, that's really important. You know, every now and then, okay, guys, do we need to stop and have a think about this? What if the opposite were true? Apply some rigour to the decisions that you're making. And often that's when um, cultural um, sort of poor culture can creep into workplaces and, and into team environments, into schoolyards, classrooms, even friendship groups is um, when there's, you know, a lack of that happening. Yeah, very wise. Um, I'd love to know, and, and I suppose it's following on from, from that, that piece as well. So when you stepped into uh, the role as CEO of the NTCA, I'm sure, yeah, it, it wasn't just jump on in and smooth sailing. And it was a few years after the live export ban had, had happened, and I know you've had a very big role to play in that review process since. But, yeah, being tasked with this, the CEO of a, a billion-dollar industry, it's no small means at all. Yeah, so um, it's a really challenging role. There's no question about that. It's, um, and it's multifaceted. It's, it's quite a, a, an interesting job. You're, you're really dealing every day is unique you, you never really know what you're going to wake up to and um, I got into the habit of using Twitter almost as my morning wake up um, sadly enough I have a quick look at that and if there you know if the Canberra Press Gallery was calm well I knew I had at least a few hours of work that I could get done without being interrupted by <laughs> some issue breaking in you know in international um, markets or whatever it might be at Look, it's one of the most rewarding and, and challenging roles I think that um, anyone in agriculture could pull on, to be honest. it's um, I particularly love the outward-facing um, grassroots relationship stuff uh, with the members and at the end of the day that's what you're there for um, is advancing and protecting their interests uh, but the role becomes... Um, so much more than that. A lot of time is spent uh, in preparing policy on behalf of industry, um, negotiating with government, trying to improve the outcome or often heading off at the pass uh, policy or, or proposed legislation that's coming in that could, you know, that wouldn't, would be detrimental to industry and to producers. So a lot of time spent in the bureaucracy uh, and in, uh, with decision makers. The NTCA has always played a role in the national space, even though we're a territory body. Uh, we'd spend a lot of time in Canberra. Um, so, you know, I spent, um, yeah, quite a bit of time toing and froing. I think one of the first jobs uh, was filing the live export class action in the federal court. So that was um, within the first so three months of, of starting in the role. So we'd been working on that. I was uh, exec officer before I took over as CEO, but um, we'd been working on that for some time. And, um, yeah, that's been uh, a 10-year um, process, really, from the ban in 2011 through to the judgment last year. So it's the 10-year anniversary um, this year. And, um, 
yeah, we're just, uh, I'm still playing a, a role in the class action. We're now to the pointy end where we're, we're looking um, to get compensation out the door. It'll still be a little way away. Um, I guess the important factor is that it's, uh, it's earning significant um, interest compounding um, until we're able to get the money paid out to members of the class action. Yeah, wow. What was it like uh, and... Yeah, I, I'm not aware of what your position was at the time of the ban. Like, yeah, I suppose what, what area of the industry were you in at that stage? Yeah, so I was a producer and on the board of the executive. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, it was quite surreal. We sat around and watched the Four Corners story. We knew it was coming. We didn't quite know what. We knew that activists had been up there and, and a, um, a camera crew. And um, we weren't quite sure what was coming at industry. We knew it was serious and, um, and abhorrent images had been um, filmed. So following the, um, the footage, the, the television program going to air, um, we had, went into full crisis mode. From that moment on, we had a long board meeting following the airing of Four Corners that night and... Uh, yeah, so the months after that were just all-consuming and it really, um, you know, it was a shock at first and then dealing with the resultant um, fallout that came with the program, the um, community outrage, the outpouring of disgust and um, disappointment and hatred and, um, gosh, you name it, mm-hmm. towards uh, our great industry. Um, and also, you know, a lot of questions were being asked and um, how could that happen? And then as, you know, often with a lot of these programs, they present uh, a side of a problem. Um, so there, of course, uh, was another side to the live export trade and there were functioning supply chains into Indonesia um, practising um, OIE um, animal health global standards and are compliant and uh, so really um, we just then were going through the process so the board was meeting sometimes two and three times a day by telephone hookup wow. and um, yeah it was it just consumed everybody's life for months and we uh, went down to Canberra and spent quite a bit of time discussing um a way out uh, with government and and it played out over a number of of months and um and then of course um was the rebuild and that the rebuild is is still going on um rebuilding the relationship with indonesia uh, trust of course they were highly reliant on australia as a provider of quality protein for the indonesian consumer they didn't have any say in the decision that government made. It was so there were elements of almost a sovereign risk issue. You know, we we have they're a trusted uh, trading partner, and and we turned off their supply of protein in a heartbeat. Um, so that created enormous problems for us as well. Let alone you know the on ground issue with animals in yards and on ships and on trucks mid you know and the ban was called and and then suddenly it's like there was just nowhere for those animals to go 
So yeah, yeah, it was uh, a crazy time. And so when when you get to so you obviously you, yeah you lodge the class action and then it's turned out that the government were negligent in their handling of it. What is it a sense of relief when it comes about or yeah is it a celebration as such or what's the reaction like? Yeah, yeah. So look, incredibly emotional period of time, um, particularly. You know, there were some days you know, so I'm privy to people's heartache and enormous disadvantage and um, and tragedy, to be honest with you, Ollie. It, was, uh, it took an enormous toll on a lot of people's lives and livelihoods, their families, um, you know, tore families apart, businesses went broke um, and the industry didn't collapse it 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 uh, fought back but it come pretty close there for a while so you become enormously emotionally invested in the outcome and um, I certainly wasn't prepared to uh, walk away from it when I finished at the NTCA um, the board asked me to keep the class action um, as a one of uh, the projects that I continue on for them to see it through to conclusion. So um, I was only too happy to do that. And uh, so it was very satisfying um, to the, the Brett family. Of course, they've had um, more than their fair share of, of tragedy and heartache, and they were the lead applicants for us. And um, they put a lot on the line for the rest of the class action. They put their their business and their personal affairs uh, on the table for us to use as as the basis for the for the case to to test the uh, misfeasance in public office against the minister of the crown and um, yeah so we're you know the rest of of the class actions enormously grateful to the Brett family for being the lead applicants for us um, so look it's uh yeah, it's interesting when the judgment day is looming, like it took a long time. We filed in 2014 and the judgment was last year. Wow. And we were quietly confident. Um, it was really, a, but you, but the odds were against us. Um, um, anyone um, with legal experience that were happy to offer an opinion, I think 99.9% .9 of those said that we were would not be successful. We didn't have a hope in hell. Like misfeasance uh, is a really high bar. It's never been proven before in a court of law. So it's, um, yeah, a difficult task. Um, it became day one, I guess, in court, it became very apparent to me that um, the AGS, Australian Government Solicitor, didn't understand our industry, didn't understand the case, and um, but the judge did. And thankfully so. Um, so ultimately, uh, yeah, he ruled in our favour, and um, and it was uh, it was uh, of course during COVID. So unfortunately, we weren't. You know, I sat through the the hearings um, up in the back of the courtroom, listening in for years, and then um, unfortunately. It, was a tiny bit of an anticlimax that we weren't all able to be together. We had a fantastic legal team headed up by Andrew Gill from Inter Ellison and they become like part of the family because we work so closely together 
And um, yeah, so we just had a bit of a Zoom catch up <laughs> after after the judgment, and uh, there were members of the Brett family. Emily, of course, uh, went to Canberra to catch up with the legal team, and Mr. and Mrs. Brett and um, family members came to Darwin and joined us here, and um, we watched the the uh, judgment via Microsoft Teams, <laughs> and um, yeah did a press conference and then went to the pub and had a quiet beer. Yeah, right. Nothing more 2020 than that, is there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were pretty thankful that we could go to the pub and have a quiet beer. So. Yeah, you're ahead of a few. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. There were some areas of the country where you couldn't do that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, for me, I was in Melbourne, luckily now in Sydney. We'll see. But, yeah. Yeah, goodness. Crazy time. Yeah. Crazy time. Now, I'd lo- yeah. Yeah. Next, next for you, obviously. So you've had this massive 2020, obviously, with the the, the political, um, yeah, challenge. I suppose. Um, what What's next for you? Do you see you, yourself staying in the territory, or do you, um, yeah, I suppose, eyeing off those higher executive roles in in different areas across the country, which I know were, uh, yeah, on the cards prior to the political movement, but. Yeah, what's next? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, we definitely see ourselves staying in Northern Australia. It's um, it uh, is home, of course, it and it has been for many, many years. It gets in your blood. Um, so um, where we call Darwin home, and uh, I have very strong connections and roots in Central Australia as well. I have family and a and a business there, so I'm spending uh, quite a bit of time there. Um, but uh, yep, potentially down the track, I'll be looking to step back into a corporate executive role of some kind. Um, at the moment, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm very um, focused on a couple of things. Um, I'm doing some board work for various Commonwealth um, agencies, and I'm also developing an ag tech product that um, I started on before my EMBA and have just shelved it as I've been busy and um, so I'm doing some work on that um, at the moment that'll be pretty exciting Uh, so I'm just uh, really at uh, a crossroads in the development of that now so um, we're sort of looking to the stage of of developing the the tech side of it the business models done and and um, the early work and um, looking to develop a sort of lean startup type. Um, I, I think that the, the uh, trade term for it's a, a white label product yep. and um, to take to the market and um, potentially could be a disruptor, but uh, we'll see if we have more to say on that down the track when I can speak freely about that. Yeah, lovely. Oh, it's not certainly just not just stepping from one challenge and taking some time off, is there? It's one challenge onto a startup. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, an interesting space, to be honest, the startup world. And, yeah, the, and, um, yeah it's um, exercising my mind a bit. It's um, certainly uh, different than being in, uh, you know, a tech environment around an innovation hub or with other sort of people operating in the tech space. So I'd say it's a little bit harder being um, away from that. Yeah. Uh, but certainly it's... Uh, it's got rigor and um, and we've been testing it for a while now and it's we think it's worth um, pursuing but 
uh, it's a matter of time, really. Yeah, cool. I'll watch this space. Yeah, watch this space. Now, one question, Tracy, which I always finish on, is asking our guests what their advice would be if you you had the opportunity to talk to students in, say, year 10 or 11, what would be your advice to them about, um, yeah, pursuing a career in agriculture and why should they consider it? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a great question and um, and I feel like I'd have much more um of a chance to convince someone to consider a career in agriculture now than, say, 10 years ago. Um, I'm really excited about the future of agriculture. Um, I think I was saying to you before we chatted about the Cattlemen's Conference um, last week in Alice Springs, the amount of young people there, the amount of young people involved in live export, it's uh it's so heartening to see that young people are seeing a future and a career in agriculture. Um, so my advice would be to certainly um, consider um, agriculture as a career longer term. It's much more than just a gap year endeavour. Um, it's often how young folk find themselves coming particularly to the north going you know a job in a stock camp for a year um, but the opportunities are there and it doesn't just have to be a career uh, working in the stock camp there's so many layers and opportunities that exist in agriculture um, the other thing I'd say particularly 15, 16-year-old young folk is to, it's tough being that age in the world that they're operating in. Um, there are so many expectations on them and just the social media world alone, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy being a young person. And so I would say to them um, that their future is bright, not to doubt themselves, um, and they certainly um, can do anything that they set their mind to. The opportunities are out there. And there are plenty of people that are only too happy to try and help. It's just um, having, I guess, the confidence to step forward and ask for that, um, for that help. But, yeah, the, I would say uh, the opportunities are there and the future's bright if they're considering a career in agriculture. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for joining the Humans of Agriculture podcast. It's been great to have you on, Tracy. Uh, yeah, it's lovely to finally meet you, Ollie, and congratulations on such a successful podcast. Uh, I'm a bit of a podcast junkie, I've got to say, and um, I really love tuning in to yours. So congratulations and well done. Well, that's us done for another week. Thank you very much for listening to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. You can find out more via the show notes below and find Tracy's profile for LinkedIn. I'd like to thank this week's sponsor again. It's been an incredible help getting the support of LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more via the show notes or their website, www.lawd.com.au. I'm looking forward to bringing something a little bit different to the airways next week. As you may know, we've just ticked over a couple of weeks ago, 12 months of podcasting, and so we've got 52-ish episodes in total, including the Royal Melbourne show. So we might have something special in order. Look after yourself, stay safe, stay sane, 
and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Cheers.